Welcome to BU Bloom. I'm Jessica, your mind strategist and the creator of BU Bloom, whose mission is to help you build greater psychological capital so that you have mental resilience through all seasons of life. And I'm so intrigued about our guest today, Mr. Nick Woodall, who is joining me now. And I want to give you an intro, Nick. Welcome to BU Bloom, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jessica. You're so welcome and thank you too. So let me share with you a little bit about Nick's story. There's some great things here. Um, Nick Woodall is a tireless advocate for criminal justice reform and he provides extensive services to prisoners who are seeking to rehabilitate. You know, they're, they're seeking to gain their freedom. He is the president and founder of Posse Solutions. He is the president of Woodall Consulting. He specializes in providing services in the preparation of clients for executive clemency applications for parole board suitability hearings and i think super important which he is amazing at is just helping prisoners develop their criminal psychological evaluations understanding the why behind the crime and i'm coming full circle from that i really want to talk about that today he is also the staff paralegal at the center for life without parole studies Oh my gosh, Nick, you are really busy here. <laughs> and um, and what's so insane is, uh, and we both know Nick and I, we both love God, um, that by the grace of God, Nick served 31 years of a life without the possibility of parole, 31 years sentenced for murder. And here he is with us today. Um, he was, um, he received the, a commutation by Governor Brown during Christmas, no, no less, in 2018. And he was granted parole and release in 2019. Oh my goodness. Um, Nick, you have been for less than one year? Uh, I've been released a little bit over a year. Mm-hmm. A little bit over a year. Wow. Yeah. And you yeah. and, and you accomplished all of this during that time frame. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I know you guys can't see Nick. Nick is tall kind of like broad shoulder, a little intimidating. No, I'm just kidding, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm soft as cotton. (laughs) And soft as cotton on the inside. Um, Would you, um, let's first share a little bit about like what brought us together. How did we come together, Nick? (laughs) Yeah, so thank you very much. I appreciate this introduction. It's great. And yeah, for the grace of God, um, but there go I. So um, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, you, Jessica, a few months back in relation to the work that I do with Posse Solutions and preparing prisoners for clemency as well as parole board suitability. And it just so happened that um, a client of mine now, Rhonda Leland, if I can say her Mm -hmm. name, and she is very close with you and, and she had you reach out to me. And next thing you know, we're discussing uh, what we're doing and and i think both of us are intrigued by the other's work and and it's just a pleasure to uh, work with you and and talk with you and and uh, discuss these very important issues that uh that really uh bear on uh the issues in society generally and the rehabilitation of prisoners and so it's my pleasure to uh not only talk to you about that but uh do the work that i'm doing with Rhonda as well i got to um meet you uh, also at a commutation workshop right. that you recently, yeah, that you recently gave. And that was so insightful um, for all of us who attended. Uh, and I, 
absolutely and i thought oh my gosh there there's there's i i said to you there's a reason why we're coming together and we both said let's hold <laughs> let's hold grace for space and yes. see what god wants to do <laughs> yes yes so, yeah that was a so lovely nick, time as well thank you oh yeah it was great um and nick so one of the biggest um areas that that i focus on is in the psyche and the brain and you know it's i i enjoy teaching people about the adaptability and the resilience of their brain because people struggle through so much and i think many view uh many listeners excuse me um may have even pondered like what it would be like when your freedom is no longer there and how does your brain adapt so before we get into that can you share with us a little bit about your psyche where you were at um during the time of the crime because we can see the journey that you have come from then to now Yeah, so thank you for that. Absolutely. Um looking back at the time of the crime, you know, I committed a murder. I killed a, a man and um uh, I was uh, actually under the influence of methamphetamine and I'd been um up for a couple of weeks actually without sleep and I was involved in this drug ring in Bakersfield, California actually. And I was trying to move up the ladder and in my depraved uh mind, my psyche, if you will, here I am um operating with these character defects that I that had been transmitted to me from youth that um I believed in uh, greed I was impulsive I was um irresponsible reckless and mm-hmm. this was what operated in my life and uh really factored into me committing this heinous murder of this fellow drug dealer uh just so I could take his place and move up the ladder um I was sentenced I was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life without parole uh plus mm-hmm. 1 year and I ended up going to state prison and I continued my criminality in prison um many of us as we enter the prison system uh a convicted murderer is lauded you're 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 applauded for your actions for being violent uh for being impulsive and just acting out without with reckless abandon I should say and so those character defects that factored into my committing this murder um were reinforced as uh, soon as I entered into the prison prison system and that continued for several years until 1995 I was in prison already for 8 years uh mm-hmm. when in 1995 that I began to think a little differently and something happened inside my brain that I I think it was just the maturity and the and the and the actual growing up if you will that prompted me to think a little differently and I remember in the spring of 1995 I began to think what was it something was wrong with me what was it inside my mind that allowed me to think it was acceptable to take another human life and I didn't like that about myself and i saw mm-hmm. change and so that was the real wow. beginning yeah wow and i love that because what you said about what you became curious about it and right. that is a big big point that that is so important to bring up bring across for the listeners is become curious about what's driving you some way why is your brain in a certain way and for me that was depression um 7 years ago you know i got curious about it and then i got pissed about it and i was like oh no you don't get to have me like i'm right. going to learn all about you so that i can master you so i i definitely want to hear more about that like what do you remember that defining moment is I it do, clear in your mind 
Yeah, I do mm-hmm. actually. And and in that moment, um, you know, I'd been, I, I'd already had been involved in many violent acts in prison up to that point mm-hmm. in 1995. And there was something about me and my life that I realized something was wrong with me. It was, it wasn't, I couldn't blame anybody else any longer. And I had to realize and take responsibility for my own actions. And it was then that I began to realize that something was wrong with my thinking. And up to that mm-hmm. point, I had never considered that. And so that was kind of a, uh, that was my turning point, if you will. And things mm-hmm. began to change. And as I sought change, uh, I actually was, was um, uh, encountered, I actually encountered uh, a Christian brother on the prison yard mm-hmm. who preached the mm-hmm. gospel message of Jesus Christ to me. And I became a born again Christian soon thereafter. And and I, my life was changed ever since then. And so my thinking changed. I uh, remained disciplinary free. I never got in trouble again in prison. I uh, had a whole new outlook on life. I was just enveloped in the peace of God and just maturing and growing in his grace. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, several staff members who knew me before and saw these changes in my life subsequent to that turning point, uh, reached out to me and said, you know what, we want to, we want to, we think you should try to get the clemency, the commutation of sentence from the governor. And we think you deserve a second chance and we'd like to help you. And so I got all this. Support. Oh, wait a second. That, that, yeah, so I'm that sorry. came out from the support of the staff. Yeah. That was right from the staff encouragement because right. we don't get to hear that. You know, we don't hear that in the news. Tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic because here I am, uh, since my, crime was 33 years ago now in October of mm-hmm. 1987 and I was just actually speaking on the phone just in the last couple of weeks with a couple of uh, custody staff from prison who have since retired who supported me in my efforts to be commuted with the governor's office and we were just discussing this very recently um, and so I had an actual staff member uh, I'm sure he won't mind me naming him. His name was uh, Clarence Terrell, and he approached me and he handed me an application. He said, "He said, Nick, I, I think you should submit this, man. God has really changed your life, and we see that. and And um, I think you would be, wow. I think you would get that. And so I filled it out. It took me a couple of months, and I waited. And he, he, uh, how you doing? How you doing? He encouraged me on that, and I brought it back to him. He read it, and we're standing on a prison yard maximum security and he he holds my hand i'm i'm caucasian and he's black and he holds my hand on the yard and we're praying (laughs) and wow and he tells me (laughs) and he and i was never more comfortable and he tells me hey you know so many staff around here know you and know the change that you've gone through he goes you should get a a page with signatures on it and so people can sign that and i thought that was just over the top i couldn't imagine any staff members wanting to sign and um, in support of that so he goes go do that and bring it back to me I want to be the first one to sign and so I was just humbled. Wow. yeah and so I went in and I began typing up this declaration page with with uh, lines on it for staff to sign and before I could finish it uh, a sergeant came through who whom I worked for at the time as a as a uh, as a clerk and he said, what are you typing there? And I explained the whole story to him. And he said, no, no, I want to be first to sign. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it was very, very humbling, overwhelming, and really, really touched me. And so he 
the sergeant was a, a guy named by the name of Bruce Cook, and he was actually mm-hmm. a senior sergeant at Corcoran State Prison for several years. And his signature, his stepping out and taking that chance on me and putting his name on that that recommendation to the governor's mm-hmm. office uh, allowed other staff who may have been uncomfortable with that to say, you know what, if Sergeant Cook can do it, I know that's good stuff. And so I had. Uh, 90, wow. 96 staff members signed, sergeants, captains, oh my gosh. associate wardens, yeah, a lot of people. And I was very fortunate. Oh my goodness. That is a, that is a humongous God-sized blessing. Let me tell you, wow. <laughs> Amen, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me, I'm going to take you also back to, um, so the, the, the psyche of what happens to somebody when you receive that uh, life without parole sentence and didn't know if, you know, at that point, I didn't, I don't know where your mind was at in terms of whether you were going to come home because I know your mind is so different today. Um, but what, take us through what that's like when you hear that back and you enter the prison. Now, were you, were you involved? Were you in and out of prison growing up? Was this, or what was that feeling like? What were you thinking? Right. So I, I, this is my first uh, prison term. I'm what you call a first termer. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be a long term. And mm-hmm. I had been in, I had been incarcerated in juvenile halls and county jails. I spent uh, from the time I was 12 till the time I was 18. I spent three and a half years in county juvenile facilities. I had 15 mm-hmm. felonies for grand theft motorcycle, possession of stolen property, and and just just a whole slew of vandalism, drunken public, etc. And so I was just a hoodlum. I really was. And um, then I spent some time in county jail, a few little small stints before um, uh, really uh, being convicted of this particular murder. And so um, I at the time I'm sentenced, I'm 20 years old. Actually, I'm arrested. I'm 20 years old, and I think two months. And and by the time I I'm rushed through county jail, rushed through trials in five and a half months, and then I'm sent to state prison. But when I when I'm sentenced to life without parole, at 20, my mind I know looking back in retrospect, my I couldn't even process that. It really didn't have any meaning uh, to me uh, as it should have. And at the time, the laws were such that uh, uh, somebody sentenced to life without parole in 1987 uh, received a a review by the governor's office after 30 years. And so for me, looking forward to that 30 years, I would have been 50 and I thought, ah, I can do this. That's how I was, I was so strong-willed, strong-minded, and I was just so ignorant of, of how life operated that it, it was just continued. It made me made me dig in my heels and say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna survive this." And soon, a couple years later, they changed the rules and and did away with that review. And so it was just indefinite. You were life without parole. Wow. You're gonna go to prison and you're gonna die there. And, and there is no review. You won't be out anything. And so I really had nothing left to lose. And so when I entered the prison system. Um, that was my mindset. My mindset was there's nothing they can do to me. There's nothing more to lose. Uh, I'm just going to do what I want. However I feel, I'm going to just, um, whatever appeals to the flesh, whatever I can gain, whatever I can, however I can game the system, that's what I'm going to do. Wow. And when you, so when you actually heard that, that they had done away with it, that two years later, it didn't, it didn't impact it still was i'm just going to do what i'm going to do or there was no hope in you or yeah um you know i really didn't have any hope 
uh, when the rules changed, I was already in so much trouble that, that it really didn't matter. I was in the hole uh, in administrative segregation and then in the security housing unit in Pelican Bay, actually, when the rule changed. And um, it really didn't affect me because I had already gotten in so much trouble by that point that I really thought I was too far gone. And uh, um. and so there was no hope. Uh, hope of release was just not entered my mind at all until after I had became a Christian and after um, uh, I really began to sense that that cognitive shift inside my brain where um, taking responsibility for this crime um, and and just um, for for not just this crime but realizing you know what all your crimes all the wrongs you've done against society that you haven't been caught for mm-hmm. um, things that things that nobody even knows uh, this is the this mm-hmm. is what has to change in your thinking and that's when I began to take uh, true responsibility for that in just my actions and then living that life of amends where you where you now want to change and you want to try to rectify and, and heal those wrongs that you've committed uh, in in whomever life you can where you just take an opportunity to just be a good person and do the right thing when nobody's looking and so that shift in my mind uh, in 1995 really began to take off and, and just continued on um, until you know 25 here matter of fact uh, kind of interesting tomorrow is my spiritual birthday December 6 1995 oh, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you Woo-hoo! So 25 years ago, <laughs> Amen. Uh, God was wow. doing something in my brain, in my mind, and really revealing to me that, you know what, it's not about you. It's about you being uh, something special into this world and, and helping others, even if you remained in prison and sat on this prison yard. And so that was my mindset. I still, even though I was a Christian changing, uh, my life was becoming rehabilitated. I still had no uh, expectation of release or parole, and and I was accepting of that. I was fine with that because now I had peace. Now it was I was beginning to understand the true meaning of life is is to serve others and not yourself. And so I lived that life, and I was fortunate enough that um, people who were in positions of control and power uh, recognized that in my life and encourage me to do the clemency so let me give the time and again sure. to our audience because so when you you, you were sentenced in 1987 okay and then was you said it was 1995 when things started to turn around and you became a born-again christian okay and then uh, from that time to how many oh my gosh how many years is that to when you were actually when you received the commutation yeah i received the commutation years 23 years later yeah 23 years mm-hmm. later so you have eight years in between and then 23 more years right. and i just want people to really sit with that for a second and in those 23 years later those 23 years were the years that you had peace regardless if you were going to come out or right. not there was some ups and downs wow. did have peace absolutely of there course. was plenty of ups and downs and uh-huh. the system was you know um uh a lot of people don't know that as a life without parole inmate until 2012 uh, you were required to remain in a maximum security institution and facility regardless of your programming or how clean or disciplinary free you were Um, and so they operated on a point system and at that time level four which was the maximum security was 52 points 
And so they kept you at 52 points to have you housed in those facilities because of your sentence, like without parole, uh, regardless of your programming. And so you had two uh, classification scores. One was called a preliminary score, which was based upon uh, your uh, participation in education, self-help, rehabilitation, um, and remaining disciplinary free. And then you had a placement score which was uh, what security classification you were between level one, level two, level three, or level four, the maximum security. So I had zero points as a programmer, which was the lowest you could have level one, but I had a 52 point placement score that kept me level four. And that's important to know is because as I'm programming, I remained in a maximum security institution and it was just full of violence, riots, murders, stabbings, uh, just you name it. And as you're programming, as you're changing, as you're rehabilitating and you're surrounded by this, it, it, you really had a sense and I had a sense of, of just no hope uh, for, for the several years until they changed the rules to allow people to be, the prisoners to be um, transferred to lower level security institutions based upon their behaviors. But that was not a practice in prison in the California Department of Corrections until 2012. Wow. So 2012, because that's that's one of the areas that you and I talked about that I think is going to be really helpful. Um, and, and like I said, when I when I when I asked you to be on the show was that, um, you know, when we're on the outside here, you know, obviously everyone deals with their own demons, their own struggles, um, depression, just so all all the things that, that human beings deal with and what's happening to us feels so terrible. And I really want people to understand that um, it's kind of like Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, who was in the concentration camps and um, the power of his brain and his mind and holding on to hope is what allowed him to sustain to finally survive that. Um, and so you know that to me you know in showing you're you you are inspiring people that wow if, if nick <laughs> if nick can navigate this psyche of what's going on here and master your mind so that you could get on the right path despite the environment that you're in then every then the rest of us can do that too so one of the conversations you and i had was it i almost liken it please correct me if i'm wrong because in males prison, so when I teach, when, when I'm speaking at the women's prison, that's the only area that I focus on currently. And the women's prison is different. We're coming together, compassion, you know, self-improvement, all this stuff is like applauded and you have like your tribe. Whereas, can you explain to us in a male's prison how different that is? And it's almost as if you have to have two identities because how do you preserve what you're trying to do to, you know, rehabilitate right when you're dealing with that, right? right? So can you, cause that was fascinating when you share that with us. Yeah, with so in, in men's mm -hmm. prison, everything is along racial lines and gang lines. And so, um, especially level fours and um, level threes. And then when you get lower security, it's easier to be focused on rehabilitation because there's gonna be more people, uh, like-minded people who are doing the same thing. And so you can really form those tribes, if you will, like you described. However, in level fours, in maximum security prisons in California, especially general populations, that doesn't work like that. Everything is dictated to you by prison gangs, whether it doesn't matter if you're if you're white, if you're Caucasian, black, Mexican, other, you're gonna have, uh, your whole life is gonna be dictated by that. It's not really prison staff or prison officials that run that. 
And so um, you don't, you won't have the opportunity to not only be engaged in rehabilitative programming, but even to practice it because it's frowned upon. Um, anything that takes away from your allegiance to your race, ethnicity, uh, or the prison gang that you have a, uh, a default and de facto allegiance, should have an allegiance to based upon your race, um, uh, is frowned upon, it's looked down upon. And so uh, it's considered a weakness. And if you are considering rehabilitation, then it demonstrates that your people, if you will, your race, your gang, uh, your gang, even if you're not a gang member, you're still obliged to participate in gang activities because of your race and your ethnicity. And so if you don't participate, you're looked down as weak and, uh, and likely to be victimized very soon if you're not at least putting on a persona uh, a front if you will of of being hardcore and tough and and you're not trying to rehabilitate because you're tough and so that's the mindset in in men's prisons in california's and it's been like that for many years and it continues today and uh it's it's problematic because there's no um there's really no no facilitation of rehabilitation and and it's it really takes some strong people to really step outside of that and and to do that no matter what and there's just not enough people to do so and mostly for self-preservation and it's understandable i i understand but it's it's um mm-hmm. it, it's equally uh, problematic for me because when you're constantly thinking about that, some of the some there's there's a lot of good people in there that that are really want to change their lives and everything, but because of these pressures and these peer pressures, that they're unable to take those steps outside of that. So what happens is uh, they have to fall in line, and they have to fall in line with those with those expectations uh, that are imposed upon them by their respective gang, race, etc. That. Uh, really prevent them from being able to focus on rehabilitation and focus on that mind shift, that change, what's going on inside them. There's really no room for reflection about you, your crime, your victims, um, your rehabilitation, because you're constantly consumed with um, just survival around you. And that's on a daily basis. What kind of, so two things with that, how did you uh, overcome that? And I also know in the work that you do, um, especially in, you know, supporting, you know, just kind of training and coaching um, um, prisoners in terms of how to navigate that, because I'm sure many of your clients are going through that right now and you having direct experience. What do you tell them? Because I still think that this is applicable to the outside world in any peer pressures or gangs and just anything in the outside world. Um, Obviously, it's more of a... Uh, it's it's more of a, a heightened sense of situation in a prison system, but can you walk us through how you overcame sure. that? So for me, it was, um, I had, as I said, you know, my turning point was in 1995, but between 1987 and 1995, mm-hmm. uh, I had a lot of violence in my life. I was, I, I, I beat up a lot of people. I harmed a lot of people in prison. Um, I promoted and practiced gang activity. Uh, within the prison system and so I had a reputation um, for that and so uh, as I 
began to experience this internal change and rehabilitation really began to take hold in my own life. Um, I'm sitting, actually, I'm housed at Pelican Bay Bee Facility, one of the most violent level four maximum security prisons in the state of California. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm all of a sudden I'm getting emotional and I'm feeling life and, and things are changing inside me that I know are considered weak on the outside. And so it really, it was really a, a dilemma for me that, that um, you know, this change is happening inside of me and, and I'm really, uh, I felt like I was becoming a human being again, but I knew it would be frowned upon. And so as I went through that and, and ultimately became a Christian, I had to, I had an obligation to uh, tell uh, the white race and the white gangs on the prison yard that I was now this as a Christian and I wasn't going to participate in that that lifestyle anymore and when I did so um, it was kind of laughed at like oh we know you're still with us we know you we know how you are and so I'm like no really I'm not with that anymore and so uh, uh, soon mm -hmm. soon thereafter you know that was my life I stopped I stopped uh, participating in that activity and so for me having had that reputation for eight a little over eight years uh, allowed me to step away and focus on rehabilitating and programming uh, because uh, I had this reputation where people still viewed me as this person and so it allowed a nice segue mm -hmm. for me to focus on rehabilitation until you know a couple of years goes by and people are you know, he's still with us when I'm really not. And I told him, but uh, that, you know, they told the, the stories about me and and the, my heroic acts of violence in prison, which were which were uh, applauded. And so uh, little by little, as time went by, the so-called fish story got a little bit bigger. And rather than correct the story to say, well, it wasn't really that bad or I didn't do that. I just allowed it to stay, so right. it allowed that buffer. It provided that buffer for me to be separated until uh, 2009, when I made a conscious decision to go ahead and, and uh, go S and Y and request uh, sensitive needs status at the prison. And so I ended up going to a facility mm -hmm. that is that is not uh, controlled by racial lines, not controlled by gangs. It's other gangs, but not uh, not not prison gangs per se it's different types of gangs they're just called security threat groups there but um it's not based upon racial lines and, and divides it's more on personal level and so if you are focused on programming that's great you can program if you don't want to be involved in gang activity that's great you don't have to be and and i that hadn't been part of my life for several years and so um i my life changed in 1995 my turning point 2009 i ended up leaving the general population after 22 years and went to a SNY facility where I could focus on that. And that's where I ended up making, uh, that's when I continued the change and I was able to just um, continue to live the life that I chose. Is it is it possible, Nick, for somebody who didn't have that uh, pre-life, like you were saying that that reputation was there to, to kind of cover you so that they would not lure you back in or bother you or what have you but what about someone else who comes in and doesn't have that what chances do they have to really stick to the pathway of yeah, rehabilitation it's, it's very difficult and, and i would say near impossible 
because you know it's like the old story mm. the old adage where you know how do you how do you survive well the the first you find the first and the biggest guy you can find and you smash him in the nose and then everybody's going to know don't mess with that guy um and so it really begins mm-hmm. with violence unfortunately and so if you don't if you don't want to be involved in that but you choose another route um especially the life of rehabilitation then you will be viewed as a victim and you will be viewed as somebody mm-hmm. to be victimized and uh, ultimately mm-hmm. there will be people who will come and they'll try to victimize you in a number of different ways whether or not it's going to be uh, uh exploiting you for money uh for commissary items um or or your time or or um, you know just any number of things for, down to you know what you can provide to us this this ethnicity this gang uh, and when you can't provide anything else and we and this gang we find you useless at this point then you will be removed from the facility meaning that you're going to be either jumped on by two or three people who are going to stomp you out um and remove have you removed from the facility where the where the custody staff have to physically take you off the yard or in 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 harsher situations they will stab you uh just to just as a disciplinary issue uh, they will count that as disciplinary to stab you to have you removed cut your throat um and until uh, you are physically removed by prison officials and then you won't be able to come back and that's how um that's how the prison system in your respective race and gang will treat you in the prison system i think that this is giving so much insight not only to myself um but to others who you know who haven't walked that walk on the outside you know been part of that kind of um what would you call it um that kind of sure. tribe you know in the right, neg- in right. a negative way you know that puts that kind of they put their their foot on your neck and you have you ha- you feel like you have no choice but to do what it is that someone says that you need to do but like you said it's it's run by them and not mm-hmm. run by the person um and you know is there an opportunity for you know for for people so people who like yourself were you able to cover others in that kind of way you know was that is that something or is it like sort of you kind of have to look out for yourself well, you kind of have to do both so you're looking out for yourself at the same time as you're trying to look out for others as well and you know it, it you have this kind of like you 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 kind of alluded to it earlier this double life and you're living two lives um especially if you're on this path of rehabilitation mm-hmm. and you're really trying to change then you're constantly having to focus on portraying uh, someone that you're not so that people in your respective gang and, and race ethnicity don't look upon you as oh he's 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 faking or he's a victim or he's not one of us uh, as soon as they identify that it's very top secret it's not it's not um really information that's going to be known across the prison yard because uh if you are mm-hmm. determined to be a victim of some sort the first thing that happens is uh people in your own respective race and gang will act like your best friend and so they can get close to you and and mm. you'll be with your guard down and you'll be you'll ultimately be victimized but the goal in prison politics if you will because that's what we call this is that you always want to try to get people with their guard down there's never uh it's rare that there's going to be straight uh face to face fist to cuffs etc it's always going to be where you're going to be uh, taken advantage of without knowing it's coming uh that's how 
the gangs prefer to um, injure, assault people, um, uh, as well as their own, and uh, and or kill you. They prefer to do it uh, sneakily and from an attack mode, so an ambush mode. So it'll never be face to face. And so with that in mind, and as you learn that, as you're trying to survive this, then what you do is you're constantly in that mode of making sure that your persona is exactly what they want to see. And so you have to work on that. And like I said, if you focus on rehabilitation, then you'll be living a a separate life and maybe uh, fraternizing with others with like minds in which you're doing that um, really on the side and and not letting people know that. And that's possible. You can kind of do that on the side sure, and sure. and do both. <laughs> it's difficult, but it's but you okay, it can't be done. Yeah, it's difficult. Wow, because yeah, because when you told me that and you said, I remember you telling me um, off this um, uh, the show here when you said to me, you know, they they get close to you, and the closer somebody gets to you to lower your defenses, it's because that's something's right. coming your way. And it's not something you want coming your I was really like taken aback by that because my next question to you at that point before, when I said, oh, we got to have you here to share this. I mean, you guys who are listening, you can imagine after years and years and years of your brain literally in fight or flight mode, literally is always on, on a flight or flight mode, um, probably uh, more on the fight mode, who knows? But Nick, you could tell us more about that. But you're training your brain that way because wherever you're spending the most time, that's where your brain is going in that direction. And you need to get in control over your mind in order to redirect it elsewhere. And yet you took it to a place where you had to almost split it, you know, split your identity in order to survive and get out of there. That, that is just incredible. That's that's, that's (laughs) completely accurate, but it's, you know, as you described the resiliency of the mind, um, it kind of just takes over and it's automatic. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not making a conscious decision on I'm going to be a survivor here. I'm just trying to survive in the moment and one minute to the next day to day and week to week. And so it uh, just so happened that I was fortunate. And, and after several years of that, that same um, mental mode, if you will, uh, I've made it to where I did. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's difficult for a lot of people because it really it really gets you in a position that you have to let down pride and you really have to let go of your pride because that's what normally keeps people um, on the general population or continuing to be participating in some of these gang activities and, and, and different um, illegal activities within the prison uh, facility uh, is pride. You're free. And as far as the men's prisons are concerned, that's what I can speak to uh, because nobody wants to look as look down look down as being weak remember that these aren't all model citizens to begin with everybody's there as a felon they've committed a heinous crime uh, generally speaking against society many some pretty treacherous crimes and so they've already came to prison with uh many character defects and um and faults and shortcomings and usually many of them share the the same shortcoming of being overly prideful and so that usually keeps them in a position of feeling the need to prove themselves at all times and so many people stay in that in that mental position where they constantly are trying to prove themselves and 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 be accepted by the other gang powers in their midst 
um, they never have an opportunity or really take the opportunity to focus on rehabilitation. And it's not until oftentimes I've, I've known many, many guys who've been throughout the spectrum here, um, it's usually going to be something very tragic where their gang or their race, ethnicity, etc., uh, really just uh, regurgitates them by uh, trying to kill them, murder them, and they're removed from the facility when that pride is able to let be let down, and then they see life in a lot different different light, and they and they begin to focus on change and realize that that was not a life lifestyle that they should be living or want to live to be successful in life period. Wow. So yeah, so in prison, um, to stay alive, you, you have to be prideful. Pride keeps you alive in prison, but yet to get out, you have to break down that pride and uh, yes. break down that ego. Yes. Stop etching God out. I love that ego. <laughs> stop etching God out and um, oh, bring it, that yeah. pride down so that you can get, stop etching right. him out so you can get out. Um, <laughs> so, so the thing is that what you did with so so someone whose brain is trained in that way and and we're talking about a lot of i mean even with ronza i mean people getting into prison at either young ages or in their 20s there's their identity is still not formed completely they're heavily suggestible to their environment and influence to the traumas of their childhood um and they don't have the wherewithal so now you put that person in prison and now you all of those um all of those deposits that you're getting in there is constantly that's neuroplasticity people that is constantly training your brain and the structure of how your brain operates and i've always been fascinated with okay now what happens when the person is released and they come back into society and one of my questions for you that I'd love to cover here was how were you able to adjust now obviously you had um you, your, your story is different, a little bit different, but a lot of stories are like that where they found God. And that is to me the most, mm -hmm. that is the most powerful right. tool that you can use. Um, but still share with us as you're, you're still a human, we're all human beings. When you left prison and you're walking the streets after 31 years, what is right. that like so, to your brain? Um, it was a total of 32 years. I was commuted after 31. And then I did another year before I was released. Oh. And so it was 32 years and 11 days total. And it was it was um, it was pretty easy for me. I was very surprised. You know, I had a, a I had a lot of support. I had my wife and my daughter who picked me up from prison, mm -hmm. and who we've been we've had some very healthy relationships yeah. for many years. I had friends, and I ended up paroling to the Los Angeles County area. And I had a lot of friends. I had uh, jobs waiting for me, and I also took advantage of uh, what's called parole outpatient aftercare. At the, at, through the California state parole system. And just because I didn't know how I was going to react, I had been mm -hmm. gone so long and, and I was concerned and I wanted to have a coping mechanism in place so that should I be overwhelmed uh, mentally, emotionally, psychologically with being released in society, I wanted to have an opportunity to be able to speak to mental health experts and, and be able to get some counseling. I didn't actually need it. I went uh, a few times and they were like, you're good. You don't really need us. But uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I think I think you're good because Amen. your mind was renewed That's by right. God, Absolutely. renewal of the mind. <laughs> but you know, I had planned. I had planned. And so I spent a long time planning this. Um, even before I was commuted, even with Life Without Parole, yeah. I was still planning on what's going to happen. I remember when I used to, when I first put in the application for clemency in 2004, and it sat pending for 14 years before they interviewed me, um, and I tried to maintain hope and, and continue moving forward, uh, it dawned on me that, that 
the commutation was not the end goal. The end goal was release and to be out in society again. And so rather than just plan for the commutation, I planned for the release. And what am I going to do upon release? Uh, well, I'm going to need a vehicle. I'm going to need housing. I'm going to need uh, finances. And so I, I set out to really create a plan for success. And so as I was sitting in prison, I have my little composition book and I'm writing notes and, and I'm brainstorming ideas of how I can get out and be successful. And so for me, I was actually just talking to a close friend of mine this morning who he served about 27 years and, and was released on parole about six months before me. And he didn't have life without though. And, and he's very successful now too. He's actually an alcohol and drug counselor in Los Angeles. But, um, you, you really plan for it. And in, in planning for it, um, you don't try to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. As I'm coming out of prison, uh, I've been a, I was a certified paralegal since 2004, and I was a very successful jailhouse lawyer, if you will, inside. And so what am I going to do when, this, when I get released? Well, there's not, there's not a whole big need for, big need for um, jailhouse lawyers, but as a paralegal, um, I was able to come out and, and continue the work I do, which is, you know, I, I still write uh, legal newsletters. I do a lot of consultation work as far as parole and clemency. And so what I did was I, I didn't put uh, some huge expectations that were unrealistic on myself. And I really set a plan and course um, that would continue uh, the same work that I had been doing for several years, except it's just on a larger scale. And that's really what I do now. And so the transition for me was pretty seamless. Um, like I said, I had some, I had, I had a great support network and I actually planned, um, I'm not from Los Angeles, but I planned on Los Angeles County because that was the greatest uh, concentration of support for me. And so I chose to come to Los Angeles County uh, as an, as an effort to be successful on release. Wow. It, it, that's exactly um something that i that i always mention is you know a you got curious about your brain about why your past was the way it was you basically evaluated yourself in in many ways psychologically i call that being your own mind coach and and then getting empowered by data collecting knowledge and data and then you know becoming a paralegal and helping others um you know you yes you have to create two identities in order to make it through uh, but that's what we do and our brain is completely adaptable to doing that it's amazing how our brains were created and and then and then you created a plan i, I can see you in front of that composition book i usually i I actually use a big whiteboard. If I could have gotten you a whiteboard in prison, I would have, but That's I didn't my know favorite. you then. I love whiteboards. <laughs> I, whenever, whenever, <laughs> yeah, whenever I have a mental block or I feel like I'm stuck or locked, I grab a big whiteboard and I start um, saying, what is possible? What is possible? Yes. Think bigger, think bigger. And then I bring it down to realistic. And I, you mentioned that right now. You said, I set realistic goals because if it's too big, the brain will reject it and say, I don't believe it. And so you set realistic goals and then you had the support, the community connection, the support system which the data shows us that when we have that support system in place, you got to reach out, you guys, especially like with me, I was going through such a deep, dark sadness. You've got to reach out and get a support system in place because that is important for the brain to feel more resilient and mentally strong. So there are some key takeaways in that. And um, 
you know, something you also mentioned to me um, was that, and it's a concern for me because I, and I think for you too, you mentioned that sometimes you don't always have the, uh, people who come out don't always have the emotional support. Like they, they help them with jobs and things like that, but maybe not be, yes, was that yes. something that you had mentioned to me? So um, that was something that mm-hmm. I focused on mm-hmm. as well, because I just didn't know there was just a, a great unknown for me. I went into the prison system at 20 years old. I'd already spent about three and a half years prior to that uh, incarcerated. And then I was being released after 32 years. Uh, and you're literally just uh, really just kicked out the back door at the prison. And my wife and daughter were right there at uh, 6.30 in the morning to pick me up. And poof, you're magically appeared back in society. And so I just, I had, you know, I had been mm-hmm. gone so long that I had no um, really... Uh, understanding of how that might affect me I didn't know I I knew that there could be some issues with that and so I really wanted to pay attention to that be sensitive to that Uh, not only uh, to my emotional uh, health and well-being but physiologically so I could pay attention to any potential warning signs that might come up and really have uh, an accountability uh, network team in place that I could reach out to at any time and, and that, that also uh, involved some of the uh, support system from, through the parole uh, agency where I was located. But it's necessary to really, um, for success, it's really necessary to establish that because you just don't know. And for, fortunately for me, it was pretty easy. I, I, I had a seamless transition. It was really surprising to me. Um, I, I remember... Uh, the first grocery store I went into was uh, was the Ralph's on Manchester in South Central <laughs> LA, in near Inglewood. And I walk in here, and now mind you, in a prison system, everything's racially divided, and so you would never see whites walking in a black area of the facility or near their their recreational area. And so here I was, uh, a white boy in the in a sea of black people, and I was like. I'm home. I love this place. So uh, I'm, I'm at the Ralph's on, Man- South, on Manchester <laughs> in South Central with my wife and daughter and I'm shopping and, and it mm-hmm. was just beautiful. I'm walking around. It was so colorful. Everything you had all the, you know, the, the all the different uh, grocery items. And I remember the thing that really struck me about that now that I, I think of it is walking out and I went through a, a self-checkout and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I don't remember seeing self-checkouts before. And so um, I'm learning as I go that I'm very resilient and I'm, and I'm picking right back up where I left off and I'm able to assimilate back into society as a productive member versus somebody who's taking away. And that's been, you know, I've been out now for uh, almost 13 months and that's just, it's, that's been my life every day. Well, and, and an area that you focus on is um, when you're helping your clients uh, and preparing them for clemency applications yes. and parole, parole board suitability hearings. Um, the criminal I, I found intriguing the criminal psychological evaluation and when i sat through your workshop because you know i wanted to attend because as nick mentioned Rhonda is someone that um i i saw a documentary that featured her and i felt the spirit tell me to connect with her and i wrote her in a letter as a stranger and i said i don't know who you are but i care about your heart and how is your spirit and she got that letter at the most, she told me that she was so broken. She had lost so much hope. And she was asking God, have you forgotten me? 
And she said when she got my letter, she was wow. like, oh yeah. my God, is this for real? <laughs> She's like, who? She said, who is this girl? And she actually went, uh, to, <laughs> she actually went to the staff and said, please, please, please try to Google her, do whatever you got to do. Like, I just need to know if she's for real. So I decided to show her I was for real. And I, I set it up with her so that I could come visit. And basically there I was uh, with the stranger in my arms and it felt so right. And that was a couple of years ago. And here I am, you know, I think that's like a seed that flourishes or sprouts later. And um, I always say like, I don't care to figure out why this is happening. I just go with the prompting. And that was one of my first conversations with you, Nick, when I when I called you and I said, listen, you don't know me, that's but true. you're gonna know me. <laughs> I said, We're gonna do some work. And, and so one of the areas when I went to the workshop, cause I wanted to learn on behalf of, of Rhonda as well, um, is Nick, right. you focus so much on the psychological evaluation. Why is that? And I can see from your story, why it's so important that you come in and so, help with that? Know, Tell ago, us a little bit I, more I about that. I began to understand that it was really about the psych psychological understanding of yourself that would help you make that next step into rehabilitation. And the reason that is, is, you know, I kind of reverse engineered the standards that are set upon uh, the lifer prison population by the board of prison hearings and so the board of prison hearings who conducts parole suitability hearings for all lifer inmates and some non-lifer inmates um, uses the standard in which they require and rightly so in my view they require you to have insight to possess insight into your criminal lifestyle and behaviors and for the greater purpose of uh, being able to recognize the same set of circumstances should they arise again upon release and you avert them versus uh, reoffend. And so I really reverse engineered this in trying to understand what this was. And the insight, there's a, there's a lot of names for it. There's a lot of um, confusing information about it. And, and many people try to make it mysterious. But what I did is I reverse engineered it and I broke it down into, into digestible parts that were understandable and people could really apply to their own life. And so this really, uh, really boils down to uh, uh, understanding insight into the causative factors of your crime. And the causative factors of your crime or your criminality are going to be internal. They're going to be what's wrong with you. If somebody in the mm -hmm. context of criminal rehabilitation within the um, board of prison hearings or the governor's office, if we're talking about a clemency application, if they ask you or they ask the prisoner, um, why did this crime occur? What they're asking is, what was it inside you that allowed this crime to occur? And what they're asking is, what was, what is wrong with you? Do you know what it was wrong with you? What it was about you that allowed you to participate or perpetrate whatever crime you're in prison for? And so as I began to dig into this and understand it really boils down to character defects and human beings, we, um, Many of us have multiple character defects, but they all come from somewhere. They're not just, you're not just popped out of the womb with them. They come from somewhere. And so what I teach is I teach that prisoners who are on the road to rehabilitation in order to uh, really discover and, and demonstrate insight into the causative factors or character defects, you have to go back and look at where they were originated. So for instance, I'll take the character defect that I possessed uh, at the time of my life crime when I committed this murder in 1987 was greed. Greed was the driving force uh, for me at that time to commit a heinous crime upon society by killing another human being. 
and so I realized that the greed that I possess is a character defect that I, up to that point, had believed that was just who I was as part of my personality. I was able to source that all the way back to my mother, all the way back to my stepfather. When I'm four or five years old, and I see、uh, and I recognize greed in them, and they're gaining from it. And so, as a young child,、um, looking at their parents and their role models,、uh, I'm adopting this character defect, and it is essentially transmitted to me at that point. And then, throughout my life after that, when I practice greed, and it's and I gain from it, it's being reinforced. It's being reinforced. Up to and including for me, my life crime. The same goes with、uh, recklessness. And where do you learn recklessness? It's going to be from somebody in your,、uh, as an influential person in your life, as a young child, a youth,、uh, and then it's reinforced. And then you're practicing、uh, recklessness in your behavior in your life, and you're you're accepting that as as just being part of life, even though you're outside the norms of society. And so what I teach is I teach people to really recognize and identify not only the character defects, but go back and understand where they came from. Examples of where they were reinforced in your life, all the way and up to including your life crime, and then for me,、um, I continued in my criminality after being incarcerated and after committing this murder. And so, and,、uh, much like many people who come to prison,、uh, men and women, and so it's necessary to go all the way forward to your turning point. My turning point was 1995, and so it really allows me to explain. Not to excuse, justify, or, or really minimize, but to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is my behavior is has a it has a, a cause, and what is the cause of my behavior? And so I'm able to go back and link that all the way through. And so in criminal rehabilitation, we call that connecting the dots. And when you can connect the dots, you will be in a position、mm-hmm. to not practice the same behaviors. Should the same circumstances arise again, and so now for me, upon release, this is what the board of prison hearings wants to see. This is what I'd like to see in other people's because I don't want to see anybody reoffend. You're out of prison now, and the same greedy people. I'm not around greedy people. I don't like to be around greedy people. I'm older. I, I'm, I'm, I'm more、um, uh, thoughtful. I'm, I deliberate. Decisions now. I don't just act with impetuosity. I'm not just moving forward impulsively and recklessly. I think about my actions. I'm responsible, and that I think about the consequences of everything that I do on how it's going to affect everybody around me, including society as a whole. And so that's something that I would never have done prior to committing、uh, the murder in 1987. But it's necessary if you're going to attempt to gain release or your freedom from prison, because you're going to have to demonstrate that,、uh, so that they will take a chance on you, because that's what they're doing. They're saying you've committed this murder in 1987, but can we trust that you're not going to do that again? Well, the only way to do that is if you know enough about yourself and what brought you to that point, to where you can now. Make the changes necessary so that when the same set of circumstances arise again, you do not reoffend or in any type of offense. Yeah, and when you and when you humble yourself, 
you're able to like literally the brain opens up <laughs> it's almost like the blood vessels open up like True. anger frustration everything tightens up right you're focused That's on right. that one dot you don't see the entire white space of, on the piece of paper and so once you humble yourself your brain optimizes to see the bigger picture. So Nick, I love how you just took us through that because I want to share that. I really want to hone that in with the with the audience is that that for you know the parole the parole board needs to understand that you understand the trajectory of what led you to have this exactly. mindset of a crime of, of somebody who committed this crime because what he's saying is that once you know it once you are consciously aware right. of it you can pause it you can do something about it which means you have a higher chance of not reoffending and the way Nick you described the greed so as a child if greed now guys those of you who are saying okay maybe it's not greed maybe for me it was you know um not getting love from a parent from a father so you know i led a life of seeking that from men and then you know it it snowballs from there whatever that is is you you identify that greed and if there was a secondary gain let's say um Nick, I don't know if this is your story or not, but they say this is a secondary game that Nick sees in his family. Now, 0 to 6, ages 0 to 6, you are a sponge. Like you said, you are absorbing everything around you. You do not have a critical filter in your brain to assess whether that is good or bad. So that's why you're such a sponge and parents, that's why we have to be really aware of what's seeping into our child's brain. So now if Nick does something like steal as at a young age, and a parent of his rewards that behavior that just became his life script and that life script is housed deep in the emotional brain that gives him those dopamine hits of like i'm doing something great because it's a known to the brain when something is known to the brain it's comfortable with that behavior it doesn't see a need for change in your case that change that came through finding uh Christ was incredible. Other people have to go through so much loss or losing family members or something traumatic happening for them to say I'm tired of this crap. I'm changing my life. So I just wanted the audience to really understand that you have to be able to become conscious of what is the impressions that you had as a child that became your life script so that you can now reverse that verse according <laughs> to right. the word. That's Let me exactly preach right. it right now. And, and just that we haven't discussed this uh, before, but you just told my life script. <laughs> so that's exactly right. Yeah. Unhealthy desire for acceptance, which is a a character defect many of us uh, possess. And it was the same oh, way for me even yes. as a young child. Um I can remember all the way back at, at five years old where my mother mm -hmm. who's single, my dad just came back from Vietnam and my mother's mm -hmm. single and she's a hippie and she's got me rolling joints mm -hmm. with all her hippie girlfriends. And I love the attention. They loved me. They thought it was a novelty act. And mm -hmm. my mom has me smoking marijuana at five years old. And in my mind, all I knew was they're just lavishly loving wow. on me. And it was so great to have that affection and that, that attention. And soon thereafter, um, I'm mm -hmm. within third or fourth mm -hmm. grade. We're we're very poor, and, and my mother and stepfather have me going into the grocery store and shoplifting food and stealing things. And when I came out with when I came out with the food, they I was the hero. Wow. They loved me, and I loved being the hero. And then they would mm -hmm. send me back in for cartons of cigarettes, and everything wow. was fine until I started stealing when I wanted to steal. 
Right. And then the greed was the reason, as Nick shared with us in the beginning of this, we're going a little, just a little extra long, you guys, just because this is so fascinating. I knew this would happen with him, but it's so worth it. But that, but that greed, like you identified early on, you said was the core of the crime. And yet it was the core of what made him feel as a child that he was a hero. So that was the downfall. So we need to be really aware adults. And let me tell you, it is never too late to reparent yourself, your inner child. And so I love doing inner child work because you guys are so empowered to be able to do that. I've done sessions by myself, to myself, kneeling before my inner child and apologizing and saying, I'm going to reparent you now. I'm a better adult today that I can take care of you the way you should have been and what you should have learned. And the data shows that it's never too late to build positive psychological capital, even if you didn't see it in your environment. So those of you who are like me and maybe Nick, who didn't grow up with like positive examples of that, I just want you to be encouraged that the data shows that you can learn it now. I don't care what age you are, it is never too late to renew your mind. The services that you provide are so invaluable. Um, I believe, especially that psychological component because not only is it for the parole board, but I see it even more as a huge blessing for the person's mind because you are equipping people through your coaching that when they come out right. that they are they already have that mind built up to endure and to sustain for the long term so that they don't reoffend. And you mentioned the word character defects and I wanna I wanna challenge the audience um to be willing. I know that we're in a time now where everything is about self-care and loving ourselves and I truly believe that. We also have to be willing to say, what is my character defect yeah. and are there any others? What are my character defects? Study mm. them, get knowledgeable about them so you can mm. overcome them. Failure is data to be greater. Failure is data to be greater, you guys. There's many people yes. who haven't committed uh, criminal acts and felonies that, that would uh, result in them being incarcerated, but they may live in a in a different type of incarceration out here in a in a so-called free society, and so it's important to learn about that, to know about that, just like you mentioned, mm-hmm. and to understand that that these can be overcome, um, that anybody can overcome them, and when you really set your mind to it, and, and you really uh, are disciplined, and and you seek that change, you seek to be a better person, that um, you can accomplish that, and there are tools available to to really do that. Um, For us and what we do at Posse Solutions and Woodall Consulting is exactly that, not just to help somebody look good in front of the pro board or to obtain a clemency, but to be changed. Um, I teach uh, how to be changed, how to discover that within yourself and and for these prisoners. And many people, they want shortcuts and I have to tell them the bad news that, you know, it's about work. It's really about learning about yourself. And when you take the time to do that, you will learn that you can be a different person. And so mm. that's the success story. And that's what we try to accomplish uh, in the work that I do as well. Nick Woodall, <laughs> you have been an intriguing guest. You delivered like I knew you would. And you know, the next time I see you, I might have to have you wear like as, as like, you know, you are like a presence when you walk in a BU Bloom shirt. A BU Bloom shirt. 